Uh, Why don't we pray together as we try to understand this passage. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it teaches us and it challenges us and it encourages us. And I pray that you would use your word by your spirit to do that today. In Jesus' name, amen. My name is Ken, and I'm one of the leaders here at Christ Church. And last week, we finished a series called Open to Question. And in that series, we looked at the four main movements of the life of Christ. So we looked at his incarnation. Uh, we looked at his death on the cross. We looked at his resurrection from the dead. And then finally, we looked at his ascension into the heavenly throne room. And so what we did was we looked at, you know, 30,000 foot few, the biggest events in the life of Christ. And now what we're going to do over the next couple of months on the lead up to Easter is we're going to look in really, really, really fine detail at one part of Jesus' life. And actually what we're going to be looking at in uh, Mark um, chapter 12 and uh, Mark chapter 13 is, uh, is really, it all happens on one day, just one day in the life of Christ. Uh, and so that's what we're going to be doing over the next few weeks. And we're particularly going to be looking at Jesus' very last trip to the temple the last time he went to the temple in Jerusalem. And everything we're going to study is going to take over the course of just that one day in the temple. And as you read through these chapters, you realize very quickly, this is a tense day. It's an incredibly tense day. Back in 2010, I think it was, I visited a city in southeast Turkey called Diyarbakir. Uh, Here's a, a picture of it. And, uh, some uh, who are in our church who are Kurdish will know that this is actually um, Kurdish land uh, here in Diyarbakir. And uh, while I was there, you could sense a, a deep tension happening in the city. In fact, just the day before we got there, there were some events happening in the city. And uh, uh, the riot police were there, and there were people protesting and things going on. And, and the entire time that we were there, there was a, a sense of this real tension going on in the city. And uh, we were doing a, a building project. We were building a roof uh, over a terrace, uh, a few other uh, men and I. And uh, we took turns to go and get the water that we needed uh, to, to work in the hot sun. And uh, I, of course, uh, waited until it was the last day to make it my turn to get the water because I was hoping that I wouldn't have to. And um, so I went to the shop, this very, very small shop, just across the street from the church where we were building this terrace, uh, where the guys went every other day to go and get water. And I walk in, and, you know, I don't speak Turkish, um, and so I was playing charades to try to, to say water. But they knew that I was there to get the water because all the other guys that looked like me were there uh, the previous five days getting water. And so they played charades back with me to let me know, no water, we don't have any water. And so then I played charades, where do I get water? Uh, And so then they started pointing uh, towards actually this very uh, gate right there. And so what I think they were trying to say to me is uh, either get out of the city, it's not safe for you, or uh, the water's over there. (laughs) And so I said, okay, I'll I'll, I'll walk through the gate. And so I walk over to the gate, and uh, just on the other side of the the old city wall at this gate, uh, on the one side, on my right-hand side, there were a bunch of people protesting, yelling, uh, holding signs, doing everything. And the other side of the street was the police in full riot gear. And I could see directly down the middle of them the shop that I needed to go to buy the water. (laughs) And so I thought to myself, okay, we need water. There's water. I guess I'll go and get water. And so I I marched right through, uh, trying, like my eyes not crossed, but looking both directions. 
very quickly, bought water, and then rushed back through. And that, that is, there was some serious tension going on. That's the kind of tension that is happening on this one day in the temple in Jerusalem. The t- tension that I felt between those two crowds is what's going on. And so Jesus shows up in the temple in Mark chapter 12 on this last trip there. And the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders, they're all there to meet him. And you need to know that this isn't that's not a random group of people. It's not just a few people who happen to be there. The chief priests, they're the ones who are in charge of worship and the sacrifices in the temple. They're the ones who are the mediators between God and man. They're really important. And then there's the teachers of the law. And perhaps a better way to describe them is to say that they're the Bible scholars. They're the learned ones, the ones who know everything about the Old Testament law. That's the law that they were experts in. And then the elders, they're the rulers of the nation of Israel. They're they're the ones who settle disputes. They're the ones who negotiate with the Romans. So these three groups, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the elders, they make up what was called the Sanhedrin. They're like Israel's parliament. And even... Even though Israel at this time, they're occupied by the Romans, the Sanhedrin, they still have authority. And especially they have authority in the temple. They're the ones who are in charge of anything that happens inside those walls. And so this is no small confrontation. And they ask him out in the open in front of everybody in the temple courts, a question meant to trick him into incriminating himself. They had already decided the day before that they wanted to arrest him. And so now they're trying to get him to incriminate himself. And and back in Mark chapter 11, just before our story, in verse 28, here's what they say to Jesus. By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you the authority to do this? You see, at this point, the rumors about Jesus had been swirling. They've been swirling now for a number of years. He teaches with such authority. He's, He's not been trained by the respected institutions. He's done incredible miracles. He's calmed a storm. He's fed thousands of people with only a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish. Twice he did that. He's healed the lame. He's given sight to the blind. He's made the deaf hear and the mute speak. He's cast out demons. He's even raised the dead. And now when he entered into Jerusalem just a couple of days before, he drew a coronation-like crowd. Everybody in the city comes out welcoming him in. And when he entered the temple, he cleared it out of all the commercial interests that were going on in there. And so at this point, the rumors about him have become so strong. And they've been confirmed time and time again. So these leaders, these chief priests, these teachers of the law, the elders, the Sanhedrin, they can't deny the rumors anymore as fake news. This Jesus that they keep hearing about and who's now standing before them, he has great authority. He has authority over creation, authority over sickness and death and over the spiritual realm. And so now those who are in charge of the spiritual aspect of the nation, they feel threatened by him. And so the only hope that they have to maintain their authority is to discredit Jesus and to have him killed. And so they ask him the question, by what authority are you doing these things? Where do you get off coming in here? 
Notice it's a question of authority. They're not denying any of the things that he's done. They're not saying, oh, you didn't heal that person. You didn't say that. You didn't do that. They just want him to reveal where he gets his authority from. And they think if he admits that it comes from God, they can arrest him and they can kill him. And part of the answer he gives to their question is this parable that we've had read. And you have to know that a parable, it's a story with a point. It's a story... It's not a story just for the sake of entertainment. It's always a a story that's meant to teach us something. And Jesus used parables all the time. And the way that his parables works is, he begins to tell this story and it starts to draw you in. You listen to this story and at first it's like it's a third person story. It's about someone else. But as you listen to it, you begin to identify with one of the characters And before you realize it, he's got you. He's caught you. The parable isn't about some other third person. The parable's about you. And Jesus is revealed in telling these parables and telling these stories. He's revealed to his audience what's really in their hearts. He's revealed who you really are. That's what he's doing with this particular parable. So let's walk it through in just a bit more detail. Notice in verse 1, the nice situation that the landowner has set up. He plants a vineyard, a really nice vineyard. When Emmy and I were living in Southern California, I don't want to brag, but we live 45 minutes away from Southern California's wine country. And uh, there was one uh, road that if you drove down this particular road, uh, for miles and miles, there was uh, vineyard after vineyard, winery after winery. You could take your pick. And so I decided to buy for Emmy, uh, for Christmas, a membership to one of these wineries. And the one I picked for it was a new winery. It had just opened. And you could tell when you pulled on the property. It was a new winery. When you pulled the long driveway that led up the steep hill, it was clear that somebody had meticulously planted the vineyard with perfectly straight rows of vines. Around the vineyard was a fence to keep the wild animals out. And at the top of the hill was a barn where they pressed the grapes and produced wine. And in front of that barn was a beautiful shaded terrace where the vine growers and the customers could gaze out over these perfect rows of grapevines. Well, that's what I picture as I read this parable. I think that's what this owner did. And after the landowner builds this beautiful, fruitful, functional vineyard, he rents it out. This was a normal practice in ancient Israel. And the rent, it was almost always a percentage of the fruit from the vineyard. So he would let uh, some tenants live there, and they would produce wine, and they would grow the grapes, and then the owner would get some of the fruit from the vineyard. And just like that, part of our membership at this winery was that each month we could go to the winery and we could pick up two bottles of wine. And so each month, we'd travel the 45 minutes from our house to the vineyard. We'd drive up the beautiful long driveway and go to the shaded terrace and pick up our two bottles of wine. And often, we would stick around and have a glass of wine out on the terrace overlooking the beautiful vineyards. But notice in this story, that's not how it worked for them. See, not once did we go to the vineyard and they would say to us, oh, no, sorry, no, no wine for you today. Every time we went, they said, here's your two bottles. But that's not what happens in this story. 
This is where our parable, our story takes a strange turn because in verse 2 it says that at harvest time the landowner sent a servant to go and pick up his percentage of the fruit. But when that servant arrives, he's not welcome. In fact, the tenants seize him. They beat him and they send him away empty-handed. So now the owner sends a second servant. And this one it says they strike him on the head and if that wasn't bad enough, they then somehow shame him. Then he sends another. And this one, they didn't stop with just beating him. This one they killed. And so the owner sends messenger after messenger, servant after servant, and each one is either beaten or killed. Now when you get to verse 6, the story takes an even darker turn. Because now the landowner doesn't have any servants left to send. And so who does he send? He sends his son. Look at this, Mark chapter 12, verse 6. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. He sends his only son, his beloved son. The landowner thinks, surely they'll accept him. Surely they'll welcome him in. They'll respect his authority as my son. And any good story, any good story you read, this would be the climax of the story. The hero, the son, arrives and saves the day and gathers the fruit and goes back to the father. That's what you expect to hear. But that's not what happens. This story reads more like a Shakespearean tragedy than it does a Pixar comedy. Because notice what happens when the tenants see the son in verse 7. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. I mean, you have to notice this isn't a mistake. It's not a case of mistaken identity. They don't see a burglar coming. To steal their crop? They don't even think he's just another servant coming on behalf of the landowner. They recognize him as the son. And they plot to kill him. Now it sounds a bit strange to us. Oh, if we kill him, then we'll get the land. But these tenants know that the law of the day states that the property is unowned, then they can claim it as theirs. And that's what they plan to do, to kill the son, and then once and for all the land will be theirs, and they'll be under no one's authority but their own. It's really evil what they're planning. Verse 8, so they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. And now comes the most dramatic moment in the story. At this point, now the question is crying out from the parable. What's going to happen next? Look at what Jesus says in verse 9. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? The owner has been gracious. This owner, he's been gracious. He's given chance after chance, opportunity after opportunity for the tenants to do the right thing. He's now given the tenants even one last chance to repent. He sent his son. And so what will the owner do now that they've killed his beloved son? Well, in the rest of verse 9, Jesus goes on to say, 
he, the owner, will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Justice. That's what's going to happen. The vineyard owner is going to bring justice. And Jesus then caps the whole story off by quoting from Psalm 118. He says in verse 10, Haven't you read this passage of Scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Haven't you read this passage? Of course they've read this passage of Scripture. These are the chief priests, the Bible scholars, the elders. Of course they've read this. Well, look at the response that Jesus' story got. All Jesus did, by the way, was tell a story. And look at how the Sanhedrin, the Jewish parliament, look at how they responded in verse 12. Then the chief priests, the leaders of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. You see what Jesus did there? He told a story. He drew them in. And then they realized they'd been caught. And so if that is their response, if their response is to say, okay, he's spoken this against us, we've got to find a way to arrest him. This parable must have deep significance. I mean, it's just one little story, only a few sentences long. Just a few paragraphs, but what does it mean? What is its significance? What was Jesus saying to them with this story that caused them to want to arrest him? Well, I think Jesus was telling them three things, just very briefly. First, I think he was showing them that God has sent his son to gather ripe fruit. This story that Jesus had told them, it's not a new story to them. Jesus, he's actually telling them a story that they already know. It comes from Isaiah chapter 5 in the Old Testament. And in Isaiah chapter 5, Isaiah writes a poem. It's a love song about God planting a vineyard. And just like in the story that Jesus tells back in Isaiah chapter 5, God plants a vineyard. And he builds a wall around it, and he builds a watchtower, a terrace to overlook. And in Isaiah's story, in Isaiah 5, the nation of Israel, they're the vineyard. Israel's the vineyard. In other words, God's people are his vineyard. But Jesus tells his story a little bit differently. In Jesus' story, the owner of the vineyard has left it in the care of some tenants. And those tenants are to watch over it, to care for it, and to produce wine from its fruit. And Jesus, he's playing off the image with this story. Israel is the vineyard. And the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the elders, they're the tenants. They're the tenants who God has left to tend the vineyard. And so with this story, Jesus was saying that God, he had sent various servants throughout history, the prophets, to instruct Israel, to call Israel to fruitfulness. But Israel had rejected them time and time again. But not only that, but now the landowner has sent his last prophet, his last servant, his only son to come and to gather up the ripe fruit of the vineyard. And who else could that be in the story but Jesus himself? God has sent his only son, his beloved son, as the last servant. And here he now stands in the temple, 
in the place where God and man meet, in the place where spiritual fruitfulness was supposed to happen. God himself standing in the temple. The very moment that Israel had longed for for generations. And they've heard the rumors. He teaches with authority. He heals the blind, the lame, and the sick, and he raises the dead. And now here he is, standing before them, the Son of God, the true vineyard owner. And they want to know, by what authority do you teach? By what authority do you heal? By what authority do you raise people from the dead? By what authority can you say to someone, your sins are forgiven? It's with this parable that Jesus answers their question, by what authority are you doing these things? And in this story, he says, my authority comes from heaven. My authority comes from God the Father who planted the vineyard in the first place. And so the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders, they're faced with a decision. Do they accept his authority, or do they reject him? Remember verse 7 of the parable. It shows what's in their hearts. Remember, Jesus draws them in to reveal then what's in their hearts. Look back at verse 7. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him. And the inheritance will be ours. And so they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. And we know from history that that is exactly what they do. They seize Jesus. They take him out of the city and they kill him by crucifying him on a Roman cross. Well, that leads us to the second thing Jesus is saying with the parable. And secondly, he's saying those who reject the Son will be rejected by the Father. And remember, the story didn't end in verse 8 with the Son being killed and tossed out of the vineyard. Verse 9 is the climax of the story. Verse 9 is the point of the parable. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Do you know what Jesus is saying here? He's saying that if they kill him, if they do to Jesus what the tenants do to the son in the parable, just like the owner of the vineyard will come to bring justice to the evil tenants, God, the true owner of the vineyard, Israel, will come and bring justice on them. I mean, can you imagine the tension of this moment? Jesus is standing at the temple and he's looking in the eyes of the Sanhedrin, of the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the elders. He's looking them right in the eye. And he's saying, if you kill me, not only will God the Father come and bring justice on you, not only will he judge you, but he'll give the vineyard then to someone else. Jesus is saying to these men, you're the evil tenants who rejected God's servants. And now you're about to reject me, God's son. And when you reject the son, you'll be rejected by God the Father. Can you feel this tension? I mean, the standoff that's going on here, one side against the other. Jesus is looking the religious leaders right in the eye and saying to them, you've rejected God. Because you've rejected me. Well, that leads us to the third thing Jesus is saying with this parable. He's saying, if you welcome the Son in, it will be marvelous. 
Remember in verse 10, Jesus quotes from Psalm 118. It's a passage they all would have known extremely well. Look at it again, verse 10. Haven't you read this passage of Scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it's marvelous to our eyes. Now, there was a story going around in Jesus' day while he was alive on earth about the building of the temple, the very temple that they're standing in having this conversation. And there was apparently a particular stone that was brought to the building site when the temple was being built many generations before in Solomon's day. And that the expert architects and the engineers who were there overseeing the construction of the temple saw this stone and they rejected it. They said it wasn't the right shape. It wasn't fit to be used for God's sanctuary. But what the architects and the engineers didn't understand was that the stonemasons had shaped this particular stone perfectly to be the capstone of the arch leading into the sanctuary. That's the word in the original language, by the way. I know in our text it says cornerstone, but in the original language it literally reads headstone. And that's why that stone didn't fit anywhere else. It was perfectly designed to be the capstone of the arch leading into the temple. And so the stone which the expert architects and the engineers rejected was actually the stone that would hold everything together. And so what was Jesus telling these religious leaders? He's telling that he himself, he who would be despised, he who would be rejected by these leaders was actually essential. He, like the entry archway into the temple, would be the one who God would provide access into his presence. In verse 11 it says that the Lord has done something marvelous before our eyes. It's something so wonderful that it causes us to marvel, to wonder. And the marvelous thing that God has done is take that rejected stone, the rejected son, and raise him up. This story that Jesus has told, it has the exact same shape as the Christian gospel message. And what is the Christian gospel message? It's John three sixteen and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save it through him. That's the Christian gospel message. It's the same shape as our story. It's that God so loved the world, he so loved the world that rejected him, that he sent his one and only Son to be rejected. Jesus Christ, God the Son, was rejected on our behalf. Every single one of us is like a wicked tenant. Every single one of us has taken this life that God has given us and declared our own authority over it. We have rejected God. And so we all deserve what the evil tenants get. To be rejected by God. Except that God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. His only son became one of us. He became a man. And as a man, he died as our representative. He was rejected by God for our sake. This is what was so marvelous. That even though humanity rejected Jesus, 
Jesus was willing, he was still willing to take God's rejection for humanity. Even though Jesus didn't deserve the rejection of God because he was perfectly, he's the perfectly obedient servant, the perfectly obedient tenant of the vineyard. Even though he didn't deserve the rejection of God the Father, he took it anyway. You see, as he died on the cross, he faced all the rejection that we deserve because we rejected God. He took all of our sins upon himself, and God the Father then rejected him just as we should have been rejected. That's what's happening on the cross. That's what happens when Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was being rejected. He was facing the rejection that you and I deserve. He was crying out with a cry that all of us should cry. And even though he was rejected by God for our sakes, this is marvelous. God raised him up from the dead and exalted him to the highest place in heaven where he stands as our advocate, as our access point to God. And whoever believes in him, whoever welcomes him into their life, God has given the right to become his child. You see, if you welcome Jesus in, if you welcome him in, you're no longer just a tenant. You're a son. You're a daughter of God. The vineyard is your inheritance. And you're no longer rejected by God. And how do we know that we won't be rejected? Because Jesus was raised up. He was raised up from the dead and became the capstone. He is the capstone that holds everything together. He is your entry point into God's presence. And He can be your entry point today. You see, maybe for you, this gospel message is working like a parable. Meaning at first, when you hear it, it seems like the gospel is about someone else. It's a story to apply to another person. But then as you chew on it, as you ponder it, you realize it's not a third person story. It's not even a second person story. It's a first person story. It's about you. And perhaps today you're realizing for the first time that the gospel is about you. It's about Jesus Christ dying for your sins, dying to make you clean, to make you acceptable before God. And it's about Jesus rising from the dead and being raised up like a capstone to give you access to God. The gospel story is your story. And listen, when the gospel story becomes your story, when you welcome Jesus into your life, when you stop rejecting him and instead of Instead, you welcome him into your life. The gospel becomes something marvelous. Until then, it is a judgment story. It's a message that condemns. But when you welcome the Son in, it's no longer a message of judgment. It's a message of God's acceptance and of his love. And that message accomplishes at least two things for us. First, it secures the vineyard for you. Remember when Jesus said in the story that the vineyard owner would give the field to someone else? If you're a Christian, if the gospel story is your story, he won't do that to you. In John chapter 1, it says, He came, Jesus came, to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Doesn't that sound just like our story? 
Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And don't you see that if you're God's child, the vineyard is yours. It's part of your inheritance. Not only are you spared God's judgment, but you get to live under his blessing in his vineyard forever. That's the first benefit. The second benefit is it keeps you humble. But many of us are here today because we are Christians already. We've already recognized the authority of Jesus Christ. We've recognized the wickedness that's in our own hearts. And rather than reject Jesus, we've welcomed him in. But if that's true, just think about your life for a minute. Why do you keep rejecting him? Why do we continue to reject his authority in our lives? God is the rightful owner of your vineyard. He's the rightful owner of your life. Yet you're constantly rejecting him. You're rejecting his lordship. You're rejecting his authority. His right to lead you and to guide you in your decisions in your life. You think your career is your own. You think your finances are your own. You think your future is your own. You think your family is your own. God owns the vineyard. Listen, I I talk to so many of you about your struggles and about your difficulties in this life. Difficulties in your marriage. Difficulties in your relationships. About your longing for a spouse. About your career. About your finances. And I think a lot of the problems we have as Christians in this life are because we're actually trying to wrestle control of our lives away from God. We think we have the authority. We think we plan our lives. We think we have control. This is God's vineyard. We say, yes, God, I'll take your salvation, but you can't have my life. That's mine. Listen, God owns the vineyard. And the fruit that's produced in your life Your career, your marriage, your children, your finances, your future. It all belongs ultimately to him. And so what this parable does for those of us who are Christians is it keeps us humble. It reminds us that God alone has authority. God gives, God takes away. Listen, the fact that the Son has come into the vineyard is good news. Because when we welcome him in, we become sons and daughters. Sons and daughters of a loving Heavenly Father who asks us to give him what is rightfully his, the fruit of our very lives. And so let's give ourselves to him. I want to give us just a a few moments of quiet to reflect. Some time for you, if you are a Christian, to consider what areas of your life you are trying to wrestle control of away from God. And would you take just a moment just to pray and to to offer it to God? Or maybe you're here and you're not a Christian. You've been rejecting Jesus. I want to put a a prayer on the screen. And I'm just going to leave it up there and if you want to welcome Jesus in today, if you want 
to welcome him into your life, then you can pray that prayer on your own. It's not a magical prayer, but it just is an indicator of what's really going on in your heart. And so I'll leave just a few moments of quiet, and then I'll pray. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of husband's decision or husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your Son. Thank you that he became flesh and made his dwelling among us, that we have seen his glory, full of grace and truth. Lord, we want to receive you, we want to welcome you in, we want to give you what is rightfully yours, and it's in the name of Jesus that we pray, amen.